Well, our second uh, reading tonight is from Romans, and we're going to be looking at reading Romans chapter 2, verse 12 to 16. Romans 2, chapter 2, verse 12 to 16. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature require by the law They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences are also bearing witnesses, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Thanks, Ian, and good evening, everyone. Good to see you all here this evening, a, a few new, new faces. And also, welcome back to Anthony and Rachel. Good to see you guys back, newlyweds, all happy. That's a good sign of a new marriage. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to be starting a new series tonight on ethics, on Christian ethics. And this is a, a huge, a huge topic, as you can imagine. And... Um, and what we'll see tonight is, actually, my thing just broke, so I'm going to steal this stand. So what we'll be seeing tonight is a framework on how we actually, as Christians, think about ethics. Um, and I'm hoping that what, what, how this will help us is that it will help us, as Christians, to think from God's perspective and the Bible's perspective on on how we actually evaluate what's right and wrong. So that's the first thing. Another thing I want to say is just a caveat that I'm not all there is to know about ethics. I don't know. I don't presume to know everything. Um, and so there's a lot more information out there. But what I do think we do have from a biblical perspective, from a Bible perspective, is some foundation on how we actually think about morality. Another thing I want to say is this is different to our normal staple of Bible talks where we open a book of the Bible and we explain it and expose its meaning. It's different. It's a topical series, so it means that we're trying to see what the whole Bible says on this topic. So it's different to what we normally do. But it's a huge topic. It's complex. It's multifaceted. And so let's, let's ask God for his help in this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you help us to be Christians in this world who are thinking Christians, who think about life and how we are to live in this life and what we stand for. Help us to know about ethics and morality from your perspective. And we pray, Lord, that you'll give us the wisdom in in understanding that, knowing that, and living it out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is ethics? It's a big word. What is ethics? What do we mean when we say ethics? Is that thing ethical or not? What do we normally mean? Well, when we talk about ethics and when we think about ethics, what we tend to be thinking about is what is right and what is wrong. 
What are the right thoughts? What are the wrong thoughts? What are the right actions? What are the wrong actions? And so when we talk about business ethics, we're thinking about what's ethical in the business world, what's right in the business world. And so you have the code of conduct between employers and employees. You have um, thoughts about, you know, should we go fair trade or not? Their ethical thinking. Or when we talk about um, ethics in the medical realm, bioethics, we're thinking about what's right and wrong in the medical realm. And so when we think about uh, human cloning, stem cell research, we have to think about what's right and wrong about it. And so you can see that ethics is quite broad. It's huge. We can also think about the ethics of a person. So we, we can think about a person and, and make a judgment. Is that person ethical or not? And what we mean by that is his character. Is he an honest person? Is he a person of integrity? Is he a, a truthful person? And so you can see that ethics is a broad term. And, and when we think of ethics, we're really thinking about morality. And so here I've got a quick definition for you. Ethics and morality. This describes and analyzes our thoughts and, feel, and feelings about right and wrong acts and conditions. And so what I'll, what I'll do now is I'll actually get you, I'll give you two scenarios, and I'll get you, just with the person next to you, think about this ethical situation. Okay, so I've got two. The first one is this. I want you to think about what you would do, and I also want you to think about what principles you would appeal to. What are the foundations for why you would decide what you decide what you would do? Okay, so the first situation is this. They're true dilemmas, okay, in history. So World War II, you're in Nazi Germany. They were in power, and they were responsible for rounding up the Jewish people, putting them in ghettos, concentration camps, and killing them off systematically. Very ruthless. Now, you're a German person living in Germany. What would you do? This is the law of the land. You are commanded to get involved, to help exterminate Jewish people. So I want you, with the person next to you, without making a judgment on each other, I want you to think about what would you do if you were a German living in Germany? What foundation, what principle would you appeal to for the decision you make? Okay, so just about 30 seconds with the person next to you, without judging each other. Okay, I think that's enough time to make a tough ethical decision. <laughs> so what I'm trying to do is encourage you to think when you do make a moral choice or a decision, what is it that you actually appeal to? Okay, so keep that scenario in, my, scenario in mind. German person in Nazi Germany. Now I'm going to give you another one. So this is also World War II related. 6th of August, 1945. Anyone remember what happened on that day? Atomic bomb, that's right. So just say, this, this bomb, in fact, killed about 100,000 people in Hiroshima, and most of them were civilians. That's what happened. But it did lead to the end of World War II. Imagine you were in the, 
position of President Harry Truman. You had in your right, your power, to decide to drop the bomb or not. You know that if you drop the bomb, many will be killed, but you also know that if you drop the bomb, that might lead to the end of the war. So again, with the person next to you, discuss without judging each other what you would do. Would you press the button or not and why? What principle, what, what, um, what method, what appeal would you make? So do that for 30 seconds. Okay, we might end that one there. Okay, so the first scenario, you're a German person, citizen in Nazi Germany. So just a hands up, okay? Don't need to hear your thoughts, anything. Those of you who would get involved in Nazi Germany, hands up. You're commanded to, uh, that's, that's the law of the land. You're commanded to do it. That's the government are involved in helping out the Nazis do what they do. Helping the Nazis do that. Okay. All right. That's okay. That, that's actually a good sign. <laughs> okay. Second scenario. Would Hands up if you would press the button for the bomb to drop. So it's about half, roughly. Okay. Hands out, those of you who wouldn't press the button. Okay. So roughly half. Okay. So as you can see, making ethical decisions, thinking about morality is not so simple. It's actually quite complex. And there are different sort of principles or grounds that we tend to appeal to. Now what I'll be speaking about now is the four major or general grounds or principles that people tend to attach themselves to or appeal to when making a moral choice. Okay, so there are four major ones. The first one of these is called... Rules and codes. Oh, that's a picture of... So that's the little boy. There's a little boy and a big boy. That's the little one. Okay. First of these is rules and codes. So what this means is when this is my moral framework, this is the method I use, what this means is that my approach focuses on the action. So I decide based on the action. And an action is good or bad depending on whether it conforms to rules or laws or codes. Okay, so a classic example of this is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments tells us, do not do this. And so the first one, thou shall not worship any other God. And so the good thing to do is to not worship any other God and to worship God alone. Thou shall not kill. Thou shall not murder. Well, According to this method, this way of thinking, this moral framework, the good thing to do, do then is to not kill. Okay, we get that? We get how this works? And this is how people often think the Bible works, that it's just a list of rules and laws that we obey and we do because God says so. But we'll later see that that's not the case. So in this approach, an action is right because it is right within itself. It's a right action because it's right. That's all we're considering. Okay, so in this framework, 
Um, if you remember the story in Exodus of the midwives, remember them, who lied to Pharaoh so that they can save the babies? Remember that story? Well, if you apply this framework to that story, those midwives, they lied, you see? They lied, and lying, you see, is always wrong. And so according to this moral framework, according to this moral framework, they actually did the wrong thing. It didn't matter that they would save lives. They actually did the wrong thing according to this moral framework because this one is only interested in the action itself. Lying is wrong. They shouldn't have lied. And so now if we consider one, that scenario at the beginning about World War II, what would the moral thing be for a German living in Germany, during Nazi Germany? Well, this guy, Adolf Eichmann, anyone heard of him? Is the mic on, by the way? It is, okay, good. So this guy, he was a Nazi SS soldier. He was commanded to transport Jewish people on the trains to transport them onto the concentration camp so that they can be exterminated. And this guy, he was commanded to do that, and he did an excellent job at it. He was extremely efficient. He was the brains behind all the logistics of rounding up the Jewish people, putting them onto the trains, and getting them off to the concentration camps. And you see, according to his moral framework, he thought he did the right thing. He was commanded to do something, and the right thing to do was to obey that. And so according to his framework, his moral framework, that was the right thing. And the interesting thing with this guy was that when he went to trial after World War II in 1961, he in fact expressed surprise that the Jewish people would be angry with him. He found that surprising. He thought he did the right thing, you see. He thought he did the right thing by obeying commandments, obeying laws. That was the law of the land. He didn't. There was nothing wrong in that. You see, the consequences... In this moral framework, doesn't matter. It's just the command itself. And so this guy, eventually, anyway, he got executed in Israel, but he thought he was just following orders. That was the right thing. Whereas another guy, how did he respond? Another German? Anyone seen this movie, Schindler's List? So this guy is, so it's not the other guy, this is the real guy, Oscar Schindler. So he's portrayed in this movie. Now, what did this guy do? What was his moral framework? Well, you see, for him, obeying laws didn't matter. That wasn't the thing for him. And in a sense, he didn't because he, he actually didn't uh, obey the German laws. He actually bribed a lot of German soldiers, paid them off, and that resulted in saving 1,200 Jewish lives. So you see that in the movie. Now, why would he do that? Why would he do this rather than what the other guy did and just obey? What was his moral framework? So what I'm trying to let you see is that there are different moral frameworks, different principles that people appeal to. So what was it that he appealed to that would cause him, that would direct him to lie to the Germans, to his own superiors, to bribe them so that he would save lives? What's the moral framework for that? Well, you see, this brings us to the next one. Another principle, another moral framework is one that is based on rights. It's another ethical approach. And this is what we um, hear as rights. It comes from natural law ethic. And in this, pro in this approach, in this method, there's a recognition that 
there is something that is right and good naturally and universally. And it's from this where we get the idea of universal human rights, universal international human rights, civil rights, the right to life, the right to speech, the right to freedom. You see, it's my right to say what I want. It's my right to marry who I want, whether male or female. This is the principle that I would appeal to. Um, Employers, they have no right to discriminate between race and gender and religion. You see, this would be the principle they would appeal to. And in a sense, that's what Oscar Schindler, that was what he was thinking. This was forming his moral framework. You see, though he broke rules, he broke laws, he lied. He even had a mistress, this guy. But what was in his moral framework was that he recognized the rights of people. He recognized that these Jewish people had the right to life. He recognized that these Jewish people were not subhuman. They were, in fact, human beings, just like he was. And so he fought for them secretly and, and in the end, saving 1,200 Jewish lives. And it's from this notion, this principle, this framework, where we get the idea of uh, human rights, and we see this throughout history. It's from this appeal that we have what we had in, um, in the 1800s, the abolition of slavery. It was appealing to rights. Abolition, uh, abolition of slavery, giving freedom to slaves. So that happened in England and in US. It's appealing to this, that we get the Geneva Convention. Appealing to this, that's where the United Nations came up. And another one, this is interesting. Uh, in the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, so this was in 1948 when it was... Um, a declaration that was signed by all the parties. There's a note there that public holidays must be a human right. Interesting, isn't it? And it's in fact, an Australian Prime Minister who added that in. So that's just a bit of trivia for you. So human rights includes public holidays, paid public holidays. So it seems like this mindset might be the way to go. It's about rights. That's how we make a judgment on what's right and wrong about human rights. But now I want you to consider that scenario again, World War II. Will you drop the bomb or not? It was about half-half. Well, you see, if you appeal to this one, you will be making a, a statement that I am upholding, upholding the lives of the allied forces. Right? I'm appealing to this principle because it means that we don't have to enter by foot. I'm trying to save the lives of the allied forces. But the flip side of that is that you actually deny the rights of those Japanese people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So if you just appeal to these rights, uh, this principle along, it actually doesn't work. When you uphold the life of one, uphold the rights of one, you often deny the rights of another. So what I'm trying to show is that these are different principles. And if your moral framework appeals to only one of them, it actually doesn't work. It's insufficient, and we'll see more of that later. So what was it that justified Harry Truman, the president? What, what was it that helped him justify the action of pressing the button? Well, this brings us to the third principle, third method, third approach to ethics, and this is known as results. The technical word here is consequentialism. 
So this is where you judge an action, not by the action. The laws, whatever the laws say, it doesn't matter. You judge an action by the results, by what happens from that action. So action is judged good if the results are good. So this is where we get the slogan or phrase, the ends justify the means. It doesn't matter what the means are. All that matters is the ends. And if the ends is good, then that is good. And so if you think back about that story in Exodus, about those women, those Hebrew women, well, according to this moral framework, they in fact did the right thing because they saved babies. It didn't matter whether they lied or not, they saved babies. You see how this moral framework works? You're just thinking about the results and consequences. So what about President Truman? What was it that helped him justify the act of pressing the button. Well, you see, what was it that he was weighing up? He was advised by his military advisors that if they were to go ahead with a land invasion, if they were to go in by foot, they would lose a lot more military personnel. They will lose up to a million people. A million people would be killed and thousands of Japanese would be killed. So they will lose more lives. So he was weighing between that and also dropping the bomb would mean there will be people who would die, hundreds of thousands, but not a million. But also there's the possibility of ending the war. So he was weighing between these two. And so in his mindset, he was thinking about the results, the consequences. It didn't matter to him that, yes, innocent people will die, but that result far outweighs what the action was. So do you see how this moral framework works? The result is what matters, and that determines what is right and wrong. So what I'm giving you here is sort of how the world thinks about morality. There are these four sort of poles, four principles. And often we as humans think this way as well. We are concerned about results. So for example, if cheating in an exam will give me good results, and if results are all I'm after, then it doesn't matter if I cheat. Or if my marriage is not going too well and I'm after happiness, that's the result I'm after, then I just get a divorce. It doesn't matter if I get a divorce or not because that will lead me to be more happy if I'm divorced. So you see how this framework works. So what's the problem with this one? You see, with each of these, there's in fact a problem. They're insufficient. Now, the result-based framework is that you tend to, you end up justifying acts and even evil acts. So they will be justified because we're after just the results. And so this framework on its own has its limitations as well. But then there's another one. There's a final one. And this is one where we call values or virtues. Now, the difference between this one and the previous three was the previous three were focused on the action. This one... You don't focus on the action at all. You actually focus on the person, the doer, the agent. And so the approach to this ethical framework, this principle, this model, is instead of thinking, what should I do? It's actually thinking, what should I be? How should I be? How can I be a virtuous person? And so this is the type of framework we see in Confucianism. So they, they will say, you're a good person if you are honest and true and, and compassionate and generous and kind and wise. It's focused on the person. What they do, in a sense, doesn't matter. 
And, for example, we talk about this way as well. Our schools uh, across the road in Surrey Hills, they have a value system. These are the values of the school. And they say they value respect and resilience, responsibility, creativity, teamwork, honesty. They're the things that make it good. And we see this in the Bible as well. Your attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus. You should be joyful. Be humble. You see, these are virtues, values. So what do you think about this approach? This approach in thinking about ethics. Well, you see, there's this lady, Elizabeth Anscombe. She was a British philosopher. She appealed to this framework. And, and as a result of that, in 1956, she gave a speech at Oxford University. She was, in a sense, protesting against Harry Truman. Harry Truman was there. The university was offering him an honorary degree for pressing the button for ending World War II. But she protested against that happening. It's because she appealed to this system, because she saw that Harry Truman, he was not a good guy. He was, in fact, a bad guy. He was not virtuous at all, because he knew that pressing the bomb would kill people, would kill innocent people. He did not only foresaw it, he actually intended it to kill people. And so she made a judgment based on his character, not on what he did. Do you see how this framework works? Okay, but this one also has its issues. If this is all you have to work off, it's actually quite ambiguous. Because how do you weigh one virtue over another? Goodness over honesty, which one's actually more important? And the other thing is, virtue actually has a, a bad side, a dark side. So, for example, courage might be a good thing. If you have courage, you're a virtuous person. But would you say the same thing if it was the courage of a terrorist bomber? You see, whereas this framework, you're only thinking about the virtue on the person. You're not thinking about what they do. Okay, so there are the four. You have rights, results, rules and codes, and you've got values. What are we to make of this? This is really how the world approaches morality, thinks about ethics. What are we to make of this? Well, firstly, I want to say that this is, in fact, insufficient in the way we think about what's right and wrong. And secondly, I want to say that this is, in fact, quite subjective. And I'll explain why in a moment. So firstly, it's insufficient. Now, what I mean by this is that these different approaches actually play off against each other. They actually have some truth in all of them. You want to uphold all of them in some way, but you can't. They play off each other. So, for example, if I follow only duties and laws and rules, I'm an obedient person, then I might fail to see someone else's rights. You see, I can't sort of hold these two together. And it's a a bit like... Uh, that story with Adolf Eichmann. He obeyed commandments, but that denied the rights of the Jews. Or another situation. If I'm about defending my rights, that's all that's important, or the rights of others, I might end up defending the rights of women to choose. But that might result in the death of babies. You see how that doesn't work together? rights and, cons- and, and results? Or if I'm all about results then, so I'm all about results, well, I might end up denying 
rights of others. I might also be ignoring laws and rules. And I might also end up destroying my character. So you see how these play off against each other. They're all good. They all have some truth in them, but it's hard to hold them together. Or finally, if I'm all about my virtues, my, my values, then I might fail to see the wrong consequences, the bad consequences that might happen. Okay, so that's the first problem with how, I guess, the world sees morality. These are the four frameworks, four principles. You can't hold them all together. So when you go to one, you deny another. The other problem with this is that it's actually quite subjective. When the world thinks about morality and ethics, it's subjective if God is not in the picture. Without God, there is no objective moral thinking. You see, ethics and morality becomes all relative. You see, if I value rights and you value laws, then then what's to say that my way is more important than your way or better than your way? If I value happiness as a result in all I do and you value virtue, you value truth, how can you impose on me to be truthful if that ends up in me being less happy? You see, it's all subjective. And so what, what happens is, Everyone has a word. Everyone has an opinion, and that's what we see in the world. On any ethical issue, everyone has an opinion because it's all relative or subjective if God is not in the picture. And so it ends up being my word against your word, against his word, against her word, and it's really about my preferences over your preferences. But what's to say that that is right? It's all subjective if God is not in the picture. And so we only get objective, absolute morality a standard of morality if God is in the picture. And that's where I'll be getting to. You see, if God is in the picture, then there is some moral standard that is outside of us. It's not just my preferences. It's actually outside of me. So now, from the Christian perspective, what light does a Christian perspective throw on thinking about morality? How does Christianity help? How can Christianity help? Well, for one, there is objective Absolute morality. Objective, absolute moral standard. You see, it doesn't depend on what I think. It doesn't actually depend on what you think. It actually depends on what God thinks and what God has established and what God has embedded into creation. And I really think that regardless of whether us here, whether we believe in God or not, we actually believe that there is an objective moral standard. You know, our reading before from Romans, let's have a look at this again. When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. You see, God has written on our hearts this sense of right and wrong, this sense of morality, and that shows us there is some objective sense of right and wrong. And we all know this. I suspect. We all know this. Because when we watch the news and we hear these bad news about, about women being abused or churches um, uh, abusing their authority, betraying the trust of the community and, and abusing children, that creates in us a moral outrage. All of us. It's not just some of us, all of us. And that's a sense that there must be some moral um, morality which is objective. And so it's not about whether 
Now, I just think it's not okay. It's something that we all should think it's not okay. And you see, from God's perspective, morality is objective. There is an absolute. But now the question comes, how do we actually get at it? How do we get at thinking about what's right and wrong from God's perspective without ending up where the world is, where things play off on e- against each other? So how do we get there? Well, you see, God has given us a conscience. But you see, conscience alone is not enough. It's not also that self-evident sometimes. We can't just try to work out God's way out ourselves. And so what we actually need to know about what's absolutely right and absolutely wrong is we actually need God for him to reveal it to us. We don't know the standard unless God tells us. And this is, in fact, what God has done throughout history. As, as he revealed to different people throughout history, he's been revealing bits about himself, his character, his ways, the way to live. And ultimately, he's revealed his ways and him, himself, through his son, Jesus. You see, to think about morality, to think about objective morality, where we end up is actually thinking about the person of Jesus because he reveals who God is. And I'll explain this. So what did Jesus do? Now, remember those four, four poles, those four principles. Now, what Jesus did was he actually reveals the objective reality of where these came from. So Jesus actually becomes our way into understanding what is objectively right and wrong. So if we just think about, firstly, the, the virtues, the values you see, virtues and values, how do we know what we should uh, value more than other? Honesty over integrity or truth over love, which one is more important? Well, you see, it has its roots in, in what Jesus reveals about God. So you see what's important in values, in virtues. In fact, something, whatever it is, it's something that reflects God's character. And Jesus actually gives us access to that reveals to us what God is like, and so we know what virtues we are to uphold, we are to have. And so Jesus reveals that God is the loving God, the just God, the merciful God, and Jesus gives us access to that. Now, what did Jesus do with with rights? Well, you see, we all have a sense of rights, that humans have right to life. Where did that sense come from? Well, it comes from creation itself. And this is what Jesus has done. He's restored the moral order in creation. When God created the world, he's actually embedded into the world, stitched into the world, features of his own character, so that when societies go and live like God, in love, in justice, in mercy, society works well that way. So there is a moral order in creation. And Jesus sort of gives us clarity to this. And that's why we all have this natural sense that the poor should be defended, that the weak should be defended, that the vulnerable, that the disabled, we should defend their rights. And that's because of creation. God created human beings in his image, and that's why we don't murder. So Jesus makes this clearer to us. And we see this in Jesus' own life. When he walked this earth, the leper on the side of the street, what did Jesus do? Jesus touched him. The tax collector who was rejected by all people, Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus had a meal with him. The children who were pushed away, 
What did Jesus do? Jesus brought them to him. You see, that comes from what's embedded in creation. Human beings are important because they are made in the image of God. Rules and codes. Well, you see, these two have roots in Christian thinking. But it's Jesus who reveals what the important commandments are, the important rules are. And Jesus says that clearly in the two, two greatest commandments. Remember that? Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And you see, all of God's law and the prophets actually hang on those two commandments. And so when we love, when we obey the commandment to love, it's not only just a good thing, but it's in fact also reflecting God's character. So what we're trying to do is get a sense into what's objectively right and good. And they're things that are related to God. Now finally, results. You see, this too also has its roots in the way Christian thinks about the future. You see, future, the results, actually looks forward to the time what God will do in Jesus. The future of God's promises finds its center and focus in Jesus. And so Jesus receives God's promises, and Jesus, what he does is makes us a part of that. So what I'm trying to show you is instead of thinking of rules and rights and results and values, we're seeing what is it that's under that. And they're all related to the things of God. And this, you'll see there will be practical implications on how we think about morality. And so the ultimate future here of all our actions will eventually lead all people to stand before God in judgment. And for some, the hope of eternal life. That's the future. That's the result of all actions. So we're seeing on a broader cosmic scale. So I hope you see that those four things, they play off in each other. But actually in Jesus, there's a way for us to think about all these moral principles in a unified way. Jesus sort of gives us a coherent way of seeing this framework where we can actually see the importance of all of it. And if you think about it, there's, a, there's another sort of principle that Jesus brings about, and that is life in him. And if you think about it, if you want to live a moral life, an ethical life, you can't do it without Jesus. Because you know what happens? Our virtues, our values, our hearts are still rotten, still sinful. You actually need Jesus to change that heart, change our way, cause us to live in community as Christians that are fitting for the future, fitting for heaven. And so the way to think about morality from a Christian perspective is actually from what Jesus does. It centers on him and what he teaches us about how humanity are to live. So that's the moral framework that I want you to sort of remember. There are those four rights, values, uh, rights, values, results, and rules, and the underlying Christian ob- moral objective. Because it will be this that we'll be applying over the next couple of weeks when we think about marriage. So when we think about marriage, we want to think about marriage in terms of what creation says. We want to think about marriage in terms of what it reveals about God's character. When we think about marriage, we want to think about what God commands about marriage. And we also think about what marriage is leading to. What's the future about marriage? You see, so we're applying this moral framework to ethical things. And it's not just those big ethical things 
even the everyday decisions. So an example, do I download illegal music? Do I use pirated software? You know, these are everyday things, aren't they? Do I own up when I do something wrong? Do I seek for forgiveness? Or do I work hard to forgive the other person as hard as that is for me because I've been so hurt? These are the everyday ethical things. And so we want this framework to shape how we live. And so for all those things, we want to be thinking, how are my virtues, my character, reflective of God? What does what I do shape what the future will hold? How does that shape what I do now, knowing that I'll stand before God in judgment? And then what does the Bible say about it? What's the commands of love? So now I'll end with this, the World War II situation. We had different decisions on that, different choices on that, but I want to finish off talking about this guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, he was a German minister, a Lutheran minister during the time of, the, of World War II in Germany. Now, when Nazi Germany took over, they, they took over all the churches as well. And what happened was a lot of church ministers, get this, a lot of pastors, they actually submitted to Hitler. They went along with it. They obeyed him. But there were some. There were, in fact, 100, 175 who resisted Hitler. And so they were, they were arrested. And this guy, Bonhoeffer, he not only resisted, but he actually helped to save uh, Jewish lives, helped them escape to Switzerland. He actually was involved in a resistance against Nazi. He was trying to overthrow their regime. But in the end, anyway, this guy was arrested, imprisoned for two years, and then executed by hanging. Just like the other Germans in, in Nazi Germany, why did he decide to do that instead? Why did he risk his life and also the life of his family? Why was he willing to go to prison, be separated from his wife? Why was he willing to risk his, his life going to the, to the stakes for these Jewish people? What was his moral framework? You see, for him, if we think about our, our framework before, he recognized that there is a moral order in creation, that Jewish people are human beings made in the image of God. He recognized God's character, one of love, of, of justice, of mercy, and that was what he wanted to imitate. He remembered Jesus' commands to love one another, even your enemies. That's what he sought to do. And he also recognized the results the results of working against Nazi Germany. That is, one is the sa saving of Jewish people. Secondly is, in fact, his death. But you see, he also recognizes the future result, where he'll stand before God, knowing that he did the right thing, knowing that he actually is saved because of Jesus. So that is our moral framework in action, a real example of a guy who did that. And so that's, that's all all for today, and I want you to keep that in mind because we'll be revisiting this as we consider marriage and work and bioethics. Okay, well, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we live in this world, this world broken by sin, distorted by sin, we pray, Lord, that you help us to seek you in how we are to live as moral, godly people. Help us to have our eyes focused on Jesus as the way we are to be humans in this world. And we pray, Lord, that you might give us wisdom 
Give us courage to stand up and to uphold what is right and good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.